On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. Congratulations. You have found the Internet's finest podcast for music that spews from the blowhole. We're going to start this episode off, like all episodes, with a little bit of trivia. All right, we're going to jump right back into it. Joe, I've got an audio quiz for you today, and uh, it's a simple one. I don't even need the theme, because if you can't get the theme, you're already... Dead in the water? Yes, yes. You're uh, floating belly up, ready to go into the great toilet of... Bad music trivia, I guess. I don't know. Anyways, so I've got seven uh, samples, seven tracks, seven clips. And all you got to do is tell me uh, the artist and the song. All right. Are you ready? I think I am. All right. Here we go. Track one. Track two. Track three. This old world may never change. Where it's been. Track four. Doing the town and doing it right in the evening. It's pretty pleasing. Track five. Track seven. What'd you think? You uh, reel any in? Um, I think I might have three, maybe four. Another couple of them sound really recognizable, but um, I feel confident with three. I'm hoping I can guess four by the by the end of the show. All right, all right, yeah, we'll we'll play them again at the end, so everybody gets a uh, another uh, chance to cast in and see what they pull out. So stay tuned for that, and uh, we'll we'll come back to that. So for my trivia, I'm not going with the theme of the show, uh, as I've not done many times in the past. You bastard. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a few clues about record labels, record labels that we we know pretty well. Okay. And I want you to see if you can guess 
the record label I am describing. Okay. All right. All right. For the first one, this record label was established in 1981 in Christchurch, New Zealand. Flying Nun. Very good. All right. All right. If it wasn't that, I had no other clue. What about Bloomington, Indiana, 1996? Was when it was established. Touch and go? It is not touch and go. Okay. Give me another, another clue here. The second release they ever put out was the debut album by Songs Ohio. Oh. What was he on? Secretly Canadian? Yes. Very oh, good. Okay. Okay, cool, cool, cool. This record label was was established in Harlem in 1921 by Harry Pace. What year was the what year? 1921. It only lasted until 24. Ooh, was it that uh black uh was it black poppy or whatever? Uh Black Swan. It's Black Swan, yeah. Yeah, very close. Sorry dang. if I got you off too early there. No, no, you're, I was I wasn't coming. I knew it was something like that. All right. Next one. This one was founded in Olympia, Washington in 1991. The first thing they ever put out was a 7-inch spoken word split single with Kathleen Hanna on the first on side A. I'm going to go K Records. So, this is not K Records. Oh. This is uh, intentionally tricky. Yeah. Uh, they actually, this is uh, Kill Rock Stars. Kill Rock Stars. I've had a 50 50 chance. And Kill Rock Stars, I didn't realize this. They were actually intentionally going to be a spoken word record label until Calvin Johnson convinced them to put out compilation, a compilation LP, which they ended up doing more of. And K Records supplied a lot of the material for those first compilations. I knew there was a bunch of crossover between those two. This label had started in 1979. It was founded by somebody named Miles Copeland, whose brother, one of his brothers, is Stuart Copeland of the police. Uh, Stiff Records? It isn't Stiff Records. Eh. Uh, very, very close, though. Kind of the next, like... Big one right after that to kind of help establish college rock bands. Um, R.E.M. was on them. The Go-Go's, Walla Voodoo, The Bangles. IRS. IRS. Very okay. good. All right. How about uh, do a couple more here? This label was established in 1978 in Manchester. It started out as a club. Yeah, factory records. Very good. Yeah. yeah. What about... This label started in Brooklyn in 2001. Mm. Funk and Soul. Um, Daptone Records? It is, yeah. Okay. The next one, really, just hearing the first, when it was established and where, could be like 10 different ones. Okay. Let's see. Chicago, Illinois, 1990. Drag City. That is Drag City. The next one, they ended up based in Chicago. But it was started in 1979 in Michigan, as, um, and it really came up as a fanzine before it turned into a record label. Hmm. 1979. 
Started as a fanzine. First release was 1981. Sued by the Butthole Surfers in 1999. If you think back to that episode. Gosh, I can't even remember what they were on. Big Black. Oh, gosh. What's his name? Uh, Albini. Albini. So he was very close with the label. It wasn't anything that he was working with. Just all of his bands were in there. Yeah. Why can't I remember what it is? Hold on. Shouldn't have spent all those hours memorizing fucking fish. Get ready for this quiz, huh? (laughs) Ah, gotcha. (laughs) That was a red herring. (laughs) I think you even said this early on, but maybe not. It's not touch and go. It is. Wow. Why did the butthole surfer sue them? I know we did an episode on that, but... So they sued them because the contracts that touch and go had with bands was really more of a handshake. Uh And at some point, they just stopped reissuing butthole surfer's music. So there's no money coming in. Because that was about when they were starting to get have that one really popular Beck-like song. Oh, yeah, yeah. Could you imagine how terrifying the courtroom would be going against the butthole surfers and them like throwing urine on you and lighting your briefcase on fire? And I imagine it often. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to do K Records, but did you know what year K Records was established? Oh, Beat Happening was probably, what, late 80s? 88? 1982. Oh my gosh. I mean, I knew it was the 80s, but I would never have guessed it was that early. Right? This one was formed in London in 1976. For Their first release was Nick Lowe's song, So It Goes. Now, that's Stiff Records, right? It is Stiff Records, yeah. yep. 1956 in New York City. And the some of the bands that have an artist who released albums on their label were Nina Simone, Frank Zappa, Kurt Vile, Velvet Underground, the giveaway, and Stan Getz. Yeah, that's Verve. Very good. So here's another one that we you may recall very quickly from an episode we recorded. This one was established in 1959 in Jamaica, but moved to London in 1962. Ooh. Island? It is, yeah, by okay. Chris Blackwell. Yeah. I've got a few more, but I think that's probably good enough. It's a surprisingly generously straightforward quiz, easing me back into the uh, the tumultuous waters. So, are you ready to move into our topic for today? Let's do it. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying Only the echoes of my mind The closest and farthest Jacques Cousteau came to his dream of flying was the moment he became airborne as he rolled his father's Samson S4C Roadster off the side of a narrow, curving road in the Vosges Mountains. Jacques Cousteau was never meant for the sea. In fact, quite the opposite. The young French gunnery officer had long aspired for a career as a pilot exploring the highest reaches of the skies. This dream was dashed in the summer of 1935. Racing the hairpins en route to a friend's wedding, 
the roadster's headlamps mysteriously went dark, and the car careened off a steep embankment. Cousteau woke up to find his back was broken, his right arm paralyzed, and his left arm was barely usable. In that moment, the young second lieutenant knew that he would never be an airplane pilot. He wasn't sure he'd even managed to salvage his limbs. Given the choice between amputation and painful rehabilitation, Cousteau took the long, hard road. It took eight months before he could wiggle his fingers. Recuperating in Toulon on the Mediterranean coast, his doctor forced Cousteau to take daily painful swims to try and slowly recover strength in his arms. He hated swimming at first, as each stroke throbbed with agony and drained every ounce of energy. To help with the tedious recovery, Cousteau's friend loaned him some recently invented Fairness underwater goggles. Suddenly, a new alien world revealed itself. A curiosity became an interest, an interest became a passion, and a passion soon became an obsession. Cousteau never looked to the skies again. In the decades that followed, despite the tumult of World War II and a short stint as a French resistance spy, Nothing deterred Jacques Cousteau from the open seas. Though never formally trained as a scientist, his adventurous, inventive, and unrelenting spirit led to huge gains in the diving and underwater exploration technology, with Cousteau being at least partially responsible for better diving equipment, submersibles, and underwater cameras. Cousteau desperately wanted to share what he was discovering beneath the waves. He devised a tool that allowed humans to dive untethered, called the aqualung, which was the predecessor of scuba. Cousteau's camera casing and special lighting gear let the world at home dive right along with him. In 1953, Cousteau published his first book, The Silent World. The book was such a swimming success that he was able to use his newfound fame to create a documentary of the book which was one of the first widespread movies that showed the briny depths in color. The movie opened up an unseen part of the planet to the masses, and they were fascinated. A box office success and a winner of an Academy Award for Best Documentary, as well as the Palme d'Or at Cannes, the only documentary to win that award until 2004. Cousteau's movie ushered in a new era of educational entertainment. The underwater movie. Conditions were perfect for this new fervor for nature documentaries. Technology was allowing more detailed filming of the most remote and exotic locales. Mass media was coming into a more populous time, with movie theaters still massively popular, but televisions becoming standard in households across the globe. There was also a general sense of excitement for the exploration of new worlds, fueled by the space race and the quest to walk on the moon. Cousteau was an embodiment of all these traits, cutting-edge technology, mass media appeal, and a drive to uncover the mysteries of our planet. Filming aboard and below his mighty sea laboratory vessel, the Calypso, Cousteau's team created a lifetime's worth of books, movies, and television programs. With each new picture, his renown grew. He was a bigger-than-life personality, who whined, women, and songed his way across the seven seas, sporting his famous wetsuit, red cozy cap, and pipe. He would bring limitless cases of wine on his voyages and feast for the Cousteau Society elites. He would hobnob with celebrities and musicians, 
notably another famous failed pilot, John Denver, who wrote this dingy classic about his time on the Calypso. It is said, at his peak, Cousteau was the most recognizable person on the planet, other than the Pope. Seemingly, the public loved a man in a red beanie. I know I do. Of course, Cousteau was not the only one making exploration into experiences for worldwide audiences. At roughly the same time, David Attenborough was making numerous travel and nature programs like ZooQuest for the BBC Natural History Unit. Survival started airing in 1961 and would be another worldwide sensation for the next four decades. Walt Disney was also releasing True Life Adventure series that took their audiences to all parts of the natural world. As so often happens, imitators would pop up by the score to cash in on this newly burgeoning fascination with nature films and shows. In this deluge of programming, there was the need for music. Lots of it. Hours and hours of background music to create a soundtrack to the whimsy, mystery, and excitement of the new frontiers of human exploration. Jungles, deserts, space, and of course, underwater. As this trend was peaking in the 70s, music library companies were happy to oblige by setting their incredibly industrious composers and session men to the task of creating a background sound for the unknown. Hundreds of records were made just for this purpose. From these libraries came an unlikely but enticing subgenre, underwater music. On today's show, we're casting our line out as far as we can to reel in an episode about a music style that is as expansive, deep, majestic, and mysterious as the oceans themselves. Be ready for thrills to your gills and grins to your fins. These sperm whales are ready to breach. All right, chums, it's time to pull your snorkel and flippers out of storage and your lures and bobbers out of the tackle box and join us as we flush ourselves into the fresh and oh-so-moist world of underwater music. underwater world is an emotional place, a world of terror, beauty, adventure, tragedy, isolation, curiosity, and surrealism. This deep world was a shrouded mystery to most humans at the turn of the century, with only mystical images brought forth from ancient legend and the newfangled science fiction of Jules Verne. 
the experiential world got just a little bigger in 1909. Albert Samama Chickley, the Tunisian photographer and videographer, used extensive funds from the patronage of the Prince of Monaco, Albert I, to waterproof his camera enough to get a short film of underwater tuna fishing. I think I got an email from that guy. (laughs) Just a few years later, J.E. Williamson created an ingenious submersible camera device called the Photosphere to film the deeper ocean. His groundbreaking and savage first film from 1914, which still survives today, shows a dead horse being lowered to bait sharks into the view of the lens, and then shows a diver sadly dispensing of the ocean's apex predator. Gradually, the underwater films became clearer, longer, and more vivid until Cousteau's breakthrough documentary in 1956. Soundtracking underwater movies has always been equal parts a product of the era and a product of the environment. Making the watery worlds come to life is a challenge. To separate the viewer from their own personal awareness of the dense, muffled, stifling sounds and transcend their experience with mood music that they almost believe is the actual sounds of the deep. Music critic John S. Wilson wrote to our preternatural sense of how underwater music should sound in 1956, saying, There must be music under the sea, the rhythmic flow that is there, the seen and half-seen visions the water reveal, its tempest and its calms are all, in their nature, very musical. Wilson understood that the music must feel, or perhaps must be, living. The earliest underwater movies share many of the same orchestration as other dramatic pieces, but with a bigger focus on sounding adventurous, exotic, or even dangerous. This seems logical since before the nature documentary started to swim, most water-based movies were built on stories of legendary monsters and terrifying mutants rising from the depths. A prime example of this would be Ron Stein's score to the 1956 B-movie, or or should we say C-movie, Phantom from 10,000 Leagues, that lurks and gurgles before hitting you with the orchestration tidal wave. monster movies gave way to more adventurous films, the music too took on a braver and deeper tone. The music was working to show man's encounters below the surface. Take, for example, soundtrack legend Bernard Herrmann's score for Beneath the Twelve Mile Reef that juxtaposes a fanciful harp against waves of dark horns.
Harp and flute seem to be staples of underwater music. The cascading, bubbly dreaminess of the harp and the delicate fluttering of the flute are perfect musical shorthand for underwater scenes. Often, at least until synths got thrown into the deep end, underwater music was just typical orchestra fare with a heavy dose of harp. And then there were the submarine and spy shows of the early 60s that had debonair wetsuited agents who were thunderballing themselves through the Cold War disputed waters. Just take a listen to the pinging score for Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea by Paul Satwell. and you should probably watch that show. Those superb sub-buds didn't just fight rooskies. Oh no, these guys protected us air-breathing civilians against all matters of dastardly ocean villains. Underwater werewolves, for example. Underwater leprechauns. Underwater mummies. Underwater aliens. Underwater ghosts. And underwater flame men. Don't quite know how that would work. I also don't know how leprechauns would work. <laughs> your hands off my lucky charms. <laughs> of course, as the 60s progressed, the music started vibing a bit more, bringing a whole new attitude. Changing your latitude, am I right? Musicians enjoyed jazzy nods to seaweed and coral reefer that they seemed to enjoy so much. And of course, they were pouring in copious amounts of semi-appropriated world music and worldless choruses in the form of exotica into the soundtracks as well. If you want to take a cheap vacation, throw on something like this, Francesco de Masi's soundtrack for Ticoyo e si suo pescane, a movie about a boy and his pet shark who take on some greedy fishermen. The soundtrack is an auditory equivalent of an umbrella drink. All of these sea genre movies were caught in the jetty with the growing popularity of Cousteau and his ilks shows. The gold standard of the underwater soundtrack was, of course, Cousteau's own Undersea World by the amazing conductor and arranger Walter Scarf. <laughs> and uplifting, this theme squeezed its way into the hearts, and speedos, 
of so many viewers who tuned in to see this new amazing world. All these traditions and tropes of underwater movie soundtracks were used, borrowed, manipulated, and sometimes outright destroyed by consistently innovative library musicians. As most library companies recognized going into the 70s that underwater documentaries and shows were here to stay, they had to have music to provide the TV producers who wanted to quickly and cheaply procure music for their programs that would be unencumbered by royalties. Having their musicians make songs and albums that would work for nature shows or diving shows was just a matter of ticking a box so they could give the networks what they needed. Without any real intention, the phenomenal musicians that we are about to discuss used this wide array of sounds and moods to accidentally create a genre, underwater library music. If you're ever in a conversation and underwater library music comes up, well, first, holy crap, you're at a great dinner party. Second, the name Sven Liebeck and his album Inner Space will undoubtedly be mentioned. It is the jewel of the underwater music crown. It seems to be as thought of in the genre as Kind of Blue is when speaking about great jazz albums. There might be albums that are its equal, but it would be difficult to find one that's better. Born in Norway, Sven Liebeck moved to New York City to attend Juilliard when he was 18. Liebeck was an incredibly talented musician, touring with the Boston Pops Orchestra as a solo pianist, but also as an actor, appearing in the film Windjammer in 1958. He visited Australia on tour with the Boston Pops and fell in love with its dangerous beauty. And four years later, he and his wife moved there. From there, he became an A&R man for CBS and produced a few big singles and several albums for others. One of the biggest hits he produced was Bombara by the Australian surf band The Atlantics. he was composing his own music as well. In 66, he began scoring TV and film productions with music for a documentary called Nature Walkabout. The same year, he also produced music for a documentary on surfing. Surf movies were popular, but Liebeck was the first to score a film of this topic without using the standard Dick Dale rock music. That score brought him a lot of attention, and he was able to release an album of his own material called The Music of Sven Liebeck, which is his first solo release to stand on its own without another medium complementing it. When documentarian conservationist surfers Ron and Val Taylor were putting together a television documentary about sharks in the early 70s, they hired Liebeck to create the soundtrack. The documentary was Inner Space, and is primarily what Liebeck is known for today. Most of the underwater music subgenre has a lasciviousness to it, and sometimes even a bit of darkness, but inner space doesn't conform to other pieces considered to be its ilk. The band is made up of some of the finest jazz musicians in Australia at the time, which was right in Liebeck's sweet spot, or his wet spot. Ew. <laughs> 
That sounds awful. <laughs> Throughout the album, there's melody everywhere, regardless of the mood being conveyed. It's an incredibly easy album to listen to, and though it fits the context of that documentary perfectly, it also stands on its own. It's music made for an underwater jazz club. You should listen to the album in its entirety when you can, and picking a clip doesn't do it justice. That said, here's an injustice of a clip from the track Music for Eels. The soundtrack had a revival of sorts when a few clips were included in the Wes Anderson film Life Aquatic. After Interspace, Liebeck continued making film scores. He moved to L.A. for nearly 20 years, where he helped orchestrate music for the company Muzak, as well as stars like Neil Diamond and Lionel Richie. You already said Muzak. <laughs> After feeling upstaged and outclassed by Muzak, Billy Joel even had Liebeck arrange some of his material. Most importantly, he worked for Hanna-Barbera, creating the music for Joe's favorite cartoon, Hanna-Barbera Superstars 10. Heavens to Mercatroid! The exact number of library music albums that avant-garde Italian composer Igisto Macchi produced is, well, unknown. <laughs> We know it was a lot, and the ones that we know are his for sure are certainly outstanding. Early in Machi's career, he sought out to create a union of experimentalism, accessibility, and optimistic doom. While leading his own group of musicians in Italy in 1967, he was also a member of Il Gruppo di Improvisazione Nuovo Consonanza, along with his friend and collaborator Ennio Morricone. Machi, like many of his contemporaries and peers, was a workhorse, scoring films, comping orchestras, and producing incidental music at a clip that seems unreal. In 1972 alone, he released at least four albums, with one of those being Fauna Marina, one of the undisputed underwater masterpieces. While a lot of underwater music contains an ominous undertow, helping to characterize the mysteries of what might lie underneath the waves, well past visibility, Machi's plots a course with his album that dives much deeper, at times approaching depths of terror. Farnham Marina is a reminder that, although this new uncharted environment is exciting, it's also dangerous. There are things lurking in the murky depths that may not be as welcoming to outsiders as we'd like, and though we can't see them, they can see us. Each track on the album is named after a known underwater entity, and though some have a playful bounce, they all buoy precariously between safe and unsafe regions. Here's a clip from the second track, 
Atene that captures all the beauty and fright that the ocean offers, using traditional tropes like harps and combining them with elements of avant-garde experimental music and even jazz at times. It's a piece that creates an unease, despite it being incredibly easy to listen to. Another Italian composer who dropped trawl in the underwater scene might be also one of the more mysterious figures that we've ever looked into. Fabio Borgazzi is that mercurial composer. Borgazzi used uh, several different pseudonyms when recording. Sometimes he was Giorgio Fabor, and sometimes Fabio Fabor, and there were allegedly others we don't even know about. Fabor is an intriguing figure, not only because of his mysterious nature, but also because of his impact on electronic music. An impact that would have been even more impressive had he granted people permission to hear all of his albums. Beginning his career in 1941, Fabor spent seven decades composing operas, symphonies, cantatas, chamber music, dozens of library records, as well as pieces specifically for theater productions, television shows, and radio. His most well-known album is In Fine Eye, from 1972, a collaboration with Armando Shasha. It was around that time that Faber began a fascination with analog synth modules that would last decades and inspire countless musicians. After In Fine Eye, 1980's Aquarium would arguably be Faber's most notable release. This is a must-have album for underwater library completionists, if there are those people. I think they're sort of like pescatarians of vinyl collectors. Very unhealthy. Like Machi, the sound Faber uses can be haunting, but it's a very different and wholly his own style. The album has moments of masterful classical music with some disco flourishes combined with subtle musique concrete. And floating in the background through a lot of the album is an uncomfortable playfulness of a drunken circus band that adds attention to the whole affair. It's exciting, and there's nothing else like it anywhere. Here's a clip from the track titled Martello that captures a little bit of the creepy joy this album serves up. Thank you. 
1973 saw the release of two Touchstone albums featuring compositions by three masters of Italian library that, like Machi's record, showcased a shifting ecosystem for underwater library. Both the Intervallo labels Etiologia and the rhombus labels Biologia Marina feature amazing, dreamy, abstract, avant-garde electronic underwater melodies by the likes of Alessandro Alessandroni, Franco Tamponi, and Amedio Tomasi. These three Italian composers shared a singular vision of the watery dreamscape while each retaining their individual idiosyncrasies, making these two releases absolutely essential. Finding original copies, however, is damn near impossible, as only a small handful ever hit the open sea. And they are hunted like dusty white whales by bespeckled crate-digging Ahabs. Fortunately, each has been reissued, so you can quit sharpening those harpoons there, Queequeg. That's one for all you Moby dickheads out there. Alessandro Alessandroni is probably the most important Italian soundtrack musician and composer whose name isn't Morricone. We discuss his story, his whistle, and his creation of the vocal group I Cantore Moderni in greater detail in our Spaghetti Western episode, but his flair for dramatic crescendo crashing into his uncanny ability to elicit nostalgia floats some of the most gorgeous underwater music. Here's a more ripping number from that Biologia Marina collection called Octopus, under his seafaring alias, Breen. <laughs> Franco Tamponi is an Italian violinist and composer who masterfully brought together classical traditions and soundtrack progressiveness. Take a dive into this track, A Qui Profunde, from the Idologia LP, and see if you don't get caught up in the lulling currents of the natatorial lullaby. third composer, Amedio Tomasi, was perhaps the most dedicated of the three to the silvery sounds explored on these comps. Tomasi started his career as a jazz pianist, gaining notoriety around Europe before eventually being recruited by Chet Baker to be in his backing band. As the 60s ended, 
Tomasi turned his attention to soundtracks and penned one of the single most important and chilling giallo soundtracks for the movie Tomas that proved to be a blueprint that other composers would gleefully crib from. Looking at you, goblin. Tomasi started working tirelessly for library outfits, collaborating with not only Alice Androni, but also Stefano Torossi, of Feelings fame, and Sandro Brunolini. He would often release records under the name Atmo, which I've tried as well. Eventually, the synth bug hit him hard, and he pulled a few primitive electronic music machines into his cellar to have unfettered access to making sounds from the beyond and the below. He would take lead on another Touchstone Underwater Library record, 1974's Mare Romantico, released on the Fly-By-Night Pretty label. Tomasi claims only 50 copies were pressed. Featuring both abysmal droning and hypnotic electro-lounge, Mare Romantico and its sister release, Kaleidoscope, are transformative records to our maritime melody meanderings. even the maestro himself, Ennio Morricone, jumped into the frigid waters, taking that polar plunge by scoring a soundtrack for the movie Orca the Killer Whale, about a desperate whale's unquenchable thirst for revenge against Richard Harris. Free Willy? More like Fear Willy. It's basically both a Jaws ripoff and a very wet noodle spaghetti western complete with dramatic close-up on the orca's eyes, gratuitous whale murder, incoherent storylines, blood-spouting blowholes, and Aneo's masterful music. Sea Fantasy, or La Musica del Mare, is as gelatinous and sensual as the jellyfish that graces its cover. It oozes exotica pulses, flamenco ejaculate, and synthy gyrations that seem to surround you in titillating tentacles of torture. 
Legendary Italian soundtrack composer and violinist Armando Shasha birthed this record in 1972 for his own burgeoning library music label, Vedette Records. Shasha made a name for himself working on countless pulpy, exotic, erotic soundtracks for Mondo movies under a huge roll call of pseudonyms. While he paid the bills with this easy-listening schlock, his true passion lay in his lust for experimental research and avant-garde sonic tendencies. Take, for example, his sinister multi-tracked string record from 1974 called Violin Reactions. He also put out a pretty crazy, heavy, fuzz prog LP under the name Blue Phantoms, appropriately called Distortions, that sounds like it would perfectly soundtrack an Italian biker bar fight, which you might call Vespa on Vespa violence. Shasha's work is considered some of the strangest in Italian library music. Sea Fantasy is an undisputed masterpiece of underwater music. However, the record was most recognized for its connection with the other undiscovered country. Several of the tracks were cues on the 1976 Mysteries of the Gods that was a <clears throat> documentary about how ancient aliens got down with some freaky early cavemen and acted as architects of all human civilization. Essentially the birth of the History Channel, with a lot less Nazis. The documentarians even called in Earth's foremost expert on extraterrestrial fornication, William Shatner. I didn't finish watching the movie, but as far as I know, Shat was not successful in cosmic copulation with our alien overlords or alien overladies. Could it be possible? Could intelligent beings from other planets have visited us and we are the products of those visits? In the Lamech scroll, an ancient Semitic writing, but Enoch assures her husband, Noah's father, that she did not sleep with the watchman of heaven. Back to Shasha's album, under the lilting light jazz auspices, the album is rather dark and muddled, much like getting ensnared by the hypnotizing feelers of a jellyfish. Here's the track, Underwater Fantasy, but if you feel a slight stinging sensation after listening, you probably need to find someone to urinate on you, post-haste. Shatner could probably help you there as well. <laughs> Please no 
note, listeners, urinating on people who've been stung by jellyfish probably won't work, and it could make the sting much worse. Only pee on those you care very little about. It bears saying that much of this library music was sort of thrown out there to be used in any sort of otherworldly experience, be it deep sea or celestial emptiness. Some artists put both themes into the same album. Take, for example, the 1967 record Zenith by Eric Tauren, which is subtitled Music for Space and Oceanographic Science. Might as well cast a wide net. Get, get it? I guess no matter which terrifying environ of weightlessness, suffocation, and infinitesimal void you choose, the sound is pretty much the same. It's kind of cool. Luciani's Lively and Lush, La Aquia, number one and number two, both released in 1970 on Italian library label Dici Monte Carlo, are stellar examples of how underwater music can transport listeners to new and fantastic worlds. Magical sounds of harps, a heavy underwater music trope, swirls and swims around and through you. Also, while listening to number two, we discovered the track Manovere Navale, or Naval Maneuvers, which we want you to listen to. We don't have any proof, but it seems entirely plausible that a young John Williams might have taken a few cues from this track to help him with a certain fish movie that he was working on. You're going to need a bigger turntable. Pretty close. Yeah. What what year did Jaws come out? 73? 74? 74, I think. Yeah. It's too similar to not be noticed. Yeah. All right. So we've been through some of the big, the big wigs in underwater music and some of the kind of more experimental ones. And now we're going to go into kind of our, our sweet spot with the stranger ones. A lesser known but equally groove-tastic entry in the underwater music field is Bruno Zambrini's soundtrack for the 1970 TV series Roconti di Mare, Tales of the Sea. It veers from frantic bossa nova to less than frantic jazz rock, like you're tubing in both a lazy river and white water rapids at nearly the same time. Here's a highlight. Beat Psychedelico 
which proves you can absolutely light a bong at the bottom of the ocean if you really believe in yourself. Production as slick as Neptune's chode, and synth beats as stiff as his trident. Alan Mounier's 1979's Voyage a Fons de la Mer is perfect to release on a record player to get your party cracking. Mounier, not to be confused with legendary French cellist, you dummy, was ahead of his time working with synths digital clavinets, and phased-out guitars to create electronic tunes that land somewhere between psychedelic freakouts, krautrock pulsations, and new-age sound baths. Bonus points for a picture on the back cover of him playing an organ in full diving gear, probably suffering horribly from the bends. Lord knows I've suffered from listening to the bends at least once or twice. Uh, In rainbows, too. In 1968, as French audiences were glued to Les Boob Tube to watch a program about an explorer who started a diving company to rid the Red Sea of its precious pearls, Les Secrets de la Mer Rouge had it all. Intrigue, action, romance, and an amazing soundtrack by Francois de Rubier. Seen as a precursor to French electronic music, de Rubier would incorporate synths and early drum machines along with folk music, of all things, to make some of the most interesting soundtrack music of his era. Sadly, and ironically, he died in a diving accident in the Canary Islands in 1975. Wah-wah. Here's a clip called Enterrament de Said Ali. bizarre records we uncovered among the research wreckage was a soundtrack by Zednek Liska for the Czech New Wave movie adaptation of The Little Mermaid, Mala Morska Vela. 
recently reissued by Finders Keepers Records, the soundtrack is stunning. A fine merging of sweeping cinematic sensibility and early electronic wave makers. Liska has 150 movie scores to his name, but this one is particularly gorgeous and idiosyncratic, as sweet and sad as the mermaid's lost voice. Here is a clip of the title theme that will surely dissolve you into sea foam. Ever wondered if Mellotrons float? Yes. Really? Dominique Goyou, the reclusive French progster, says to you, Of course they don't, idiot. His sunken yacht prog masterwork is 1978's L'Univers de la Mer, and it's a sensual, spacey groove fest. Armed only with Mellotron, a mini-moog, a clavinet, an organ, his own, and a guitar. Gouet makes music that sets the mood for some... Or alarm erotica. Let's hope Quentin Tarantino never finds out. Another sweet oddity is EMR 06, a 1970-ish plaintive masterpiece by Luigi Malatesta and Sandro Brugnolini for the library label EMR. The first eight tracks are all simply called Plankton. The sound is reminiscent of millions of tiny drifting organisms creating a greater amorphous shape with its incorporeal duets of piano and synth. Sort of like the supervillain swarm, whose body is composed of a thousand bees. The final track is beautiful, called Laguna Forfesiente. It truly evokes the magic of skinny dipping in an iridescent lagoon, with my junk all lit up in the grandeur of nature. Thinking about Neptune's chode. Library stalwart Pierre Arve fought for the French resistance before becoming a radio DJ and finally a prolific composer and arranger. 
Arve had an ear for the avant-garde and a tremendous breadth of musical prowess, and became a huge player for DeWolf, eventually putting out a nautical-themed record, illustration number three. Of course, as is the nature of library music, the songs can show up almost anywhere. For example, Arve's track, Grate Submarine, or Underwater Caves, ended up in the decidedly not-very-underwater Shaw Brothers Kung Fu Midnight movie, Shaolin Handlock. Possibly the greatest name ever for a documentary, The Secret Love Life of the Octopus, has an incredible musique concrete soundtrack by French experimental musician Pierre Henry. The short movie was released in 1967, but a small Mexican label, Stomachache Records, put out the soundtrack on vinyl in 1994. Pretty hard to get your arms around it, even if you have eight of them. It's a hard one to reel to reel in. I feel bad for those octopus. Like, why do they have to keep it a secret? I, there's no shame. Un crabe fuit dont elle s'emparera d'un coup de tentacule ou d'un saut. The director of The Love Life of the Octopus was Jean Panlieve. If Cousteau was the Beatles of aquatic filmmaking, Panlieve was the Velvet Underground. Espousing the belief that science is fiction, he brought beauty and absurdism into aquatic fauna filmmaking. He was influenced by and influential on the Surrealist movement, as his films and photos were shown in the same galleries and exhibits. He also created quite a stir with his gorgeous and intimate film of seahorses getting it on, called The Seahorse. His dramatic and close-up style, eventually dubbed scientific poetic cinema, or possibly seahorse porn, was completely unique and surely inspirational to the musicians who witnessed any of the Curious 200 nature films. The most notable being Hoboken's favorite rock critics, Yola Tango, who in 2001 recorded a score for eight of his documentaries and released it as The Sounds of the Sounds of Science. You know, when I think back on all the things that people have said to me, and I think I may have misunderstood, it strikes me now that Hung Like a Seahorse wasn't a compliment.
As we mentioned earlier, the rise of Italian schlock mock shock docs, Mondo movies, presented a whole new exploitable world for underwater movies. Often presented as travelogues, these hypergraphic and often sexist, racist, and cruelty animals flicks made extensive use of underwater cameras showing how so many things can go wrong in the seven seas and so many ways swimsuits can get dislodged. The Mondo soundtracks can be a lot of fun, using a combination of usual underwater sounds with a heavy dose of sleaze. Pericolo Negli Abissi, which translates to something like Danger in the Abyss, is basically a feature-length opportunity to show bikini-clad divers getting attacked by a variety of aquatic aggressors. Though the underwater striptease is certainly titillating. The film is best known for its sea-snake nipple-chomping scene. It's eerily something to see. Huh. But what really butters my barnacles is Stefano Liberati's soulful and jazzy soundtrack that somehow slightly classes up this entirely classless movie. <laughs> Danielle Patucci is another big fish in the Mondo Underwater Music Small Pond. The Italian soundtrack composer released several scores for diving Mondos, including Sharks and Men, Discovering the Sea, and the 1973 classic town soundtrack for Men of the Sea. Patucci definitely incorporates elements of bossa nova with lush exotica in his work, which provides a perfect backdrop for relaxing in your beneath the wave grotto, sipping umbrella drinks, and watching a couple of hammerheads chum-bucketing some poor schmuck's extremities. sinister, creeping influence of the Jaws soundtrack on the 1981 Mondo, appropriately titled Great White Death. The actual reenacted shark attacks are made even more fantastic thanks to Jean Savageau's music that clearly smells blood and circles you from below. Thank you. 
finally, we might be stretching just a bit, but we might as well mention the soft shell, soft core soundtrack for the Isle de l'Amour by the master of Manamana himself, Piero Umiliano. Bridging the waters. <laughs> it's a water joke. We finally got a water joke in this one. Oh, we should have been doing puns this whole time. I know. Bridging the waters between exotica and underwater scores, the soundtrack features the legendary Italian wordless chorus on top of elegant grooviness, perfect for Polynesian polyamorous playtime. further away from the 60s library music got, the more practical sense it made to go completely synth. As synths became the norm in the late 70s and early 80s, so too did library production studios follow suit, leaving the more expensive and involved orchestration in favor of the small, powerful, plugged-in devices that easily, almost automatically, made otherworldly sounds. While often these soundtracks sounded lazy, stilted, and forgettable, Sometimes they were on the cutting edge of ambient. A perfect example of this is Walt Rockman's Underwater Volume 1 for Germany's Sonatone Records, released in 1980. Far more experimental and ambient, the music has a subtle, demanding dread. Um, imagine Eno composing an album while trapped in a bathosphere as tiny cracks spiderweb their way along the glass. Rockman was actually named Gerhard Narholz, and he started Munich's Sonatone Music Library with his wife Heidi in 1965. There's also a volume two, performed by some other artists, which have some great aquatic song titles like Fish of Prey, Weeping Eelgrass, Suffocation, Wet Komodo, and my favorite, Wet Suit. If the name Eric Vaughn doesn't ring a buoy bell for you, perhaps you've heard the name Joel Van Drugenbrock. Be a hard name to forget. 
We've talked about him a number of times on the podcast, as he is one of the most amazing and unheralded library musicians. Starting as the mastermind of the experimental jazz, krautrock, psych, space rock, prog band Brain Ticket, the Belgian composer and multi-instrumentalist spent a huge amount of time making amazing library music. The bizarro sci-fi Biomechanoid album, featuring the nightmare-inducing cover by H.R. Geiger, and his work for German label Color Sound, is incredibly interesting and definitely worth seeking out. The Color Sound stuff was recently compiled and released by Drag City, so you have a chance of actually hearing it. His relevance to underwater music comes in two phenomenal releases from the early 80s, also released on Color Sound under the alias Eric Vaughn. Van Drugenbrock never explained why he took on the new nom de plume, other than to say, these were records I made that were not in my usual recognizable style. The first record was called Space Face, and was yet another example of the Venn diagram between library sounds of space music and underwater music. Or in this case, perhaps it's more of a Vaughn diagram. Here is a bit of the song Underwater Space. Vaughn went all the way out to sea for the next record called Waterworld. I have heard from reliable sources that Kevin Costner listened to this exclusively as he invented the machine that converts human excrata into pure delicious drinking water, which would come in handy on several of his epic films. The album itself is immersive and phenomenal. Much like The Mighty Sea itself, it presents moments of stormy rage, Moments of calm contemplation, moments of relentless drive, moments of gurgling infinity, and moments of pure oceanic fantasy. It definitely has an 80s neon sheen to it, but in a way that makes you feel mystically rebellious. Like doing lines of Kokomo Cane off the nose of a swordfish at a seedy Atlantean nightclub. Truly the masterwork of underwater music and a must-listen, though unfortunately it has not been reissued like so many other library classics. Here is a clip of the opener track, Gulfstream.
The band Astral Sounds, led by musician John Saunders, released music for both Rouge Music and DeWolf, and were some of the undisputed kingpins of library synth. Their record, Red Kite, released in 1982, was aimed at merging the seemingly disparate natural world and synthetic music. The liner notes state it simply, Electronic sounds suitable for water in nature, played by Astral Sounds. The record is honestly one of the more interesting albums we discovered that clearly has a focus on the strange sedative effects of experiencing the world below. Here's a clip from the track Coral. Access to a sensory deprivation tank, and why wouldn't you? We would recommend throwing on Akira Ito's Marine Flowers for an enhanced out of body experience. The Japanese multi instrumentalist composed a soundtrack for a documentary about Palau marine wildlife, which was commissioned by Pioneer's Laser Disc Division. Check it out in high def. subtle but a good bit more frightening is library legend Alan Hawkshaw's 1985 whale of synth Underworld on Bruton Records. A million miles down from the uber-sampled banger The Champ, the whole record has an outstandingly creepy vibe and can best be described as Massacre at the Blue Lagoon or, or maybe Camp Crystal Lake Blues. An undiscovered gem for horror music accolades. Here's some of the title track. Peer to Tour's 1982 album, Aquarius, for Patchwork Records, nimbly prances between lithe and whimsical medieval polyphonics and the deep chill of the underwater synth waves. Like a clumsy fire juggler who sets his tunic ablaze only to relieve himself in a cut-rate Renaissance fair dunking booth. You know what I mean.
as long as we're talking about albums titled Aquarius, and there are many of them, BBC composer Paul Williams, not that Muppet guy, had a 1987 record that had some strong diving bell synth vibes going for it. The wordless choir sounds like it rises up from the cracks at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, like a kaiju vangelis. Alexander Cherdon and Andres Kobner's submarine background is so languid, tranquil, and tepid that I have seen more life from goldfish getting flushed down the toilet for a proper burial at sea. that terrible sting soundtrack that we need to mention before we talk about that we've received a lot of criticism maybe some hate mail for our podcast's pretty consistent japery of stings tantric proclivities so in the spirit we're gonna hold off for as long as we can but we can't promise that we just won't explode at some point oh feels good to get that one off been a long time coming, really. Anywho, uh, Sting wrote a whole terrible soundtrack for the 1995 IMAX movie, The Living Sea. The music, as you probably suspect deep in your soul, is forgettable New Age pop. But the scene of Mr. Sumner himself skin-diving in his dune underwear among a school of globfish is truly pure Oscar bait. <laughs> Underwater library music was a genre that never really was. Only looking back and piecing together the relics of utility that only become cohesive upon reflection, sort of a reverse ship of Theseus paradox situation, does an object remain itself if its pieces were never properly assembled in the first place? Of course, the would-have-been genre has its own form and its own sound and its own disciples. By far the most important modern figure in underwater library music, maybe all of library music, is British writer, DJ, artist, raconteur, record collector, archivist, and label owner, Johnny Trunk. We've discussed him in prior episodes, but his ability to find and champion lost music is unrivaled. He is eloquently and consistently bringing back forgotten genres and issuing them on his label, Trunk Records. 
there is precious little written about the underwater library scene, which is really only sort of a thing at all, but Trunk carries the torch, or trident maybe, but not chode, by creating curated set lists on his radio show and creating his own records full of stylish and incredible samples. His most obviously underwater-related release was his 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea record. He took Jules Verne's steampunkish epic and created the soundtrack that it always needed. The album comes complete with Scrimshaw artwork and a copy of the classic novel, Amazing Piece of Underwater Library. Here's a nibble of the song, Excellent Zoophytes. Beyond releasing his own Hydra's hymns, Trunk works tirelessly to keep his beloved underwater library genre afloat. A perfect example is the upcoming Trunk record reissue of the soundtrack for Wonders of the Underwater World by Gerald Jez Woodruff. Jez Woodruff is probably best known as the well-mustachioed de facto keyboardist for Black Sabbath during the past-their-prime sabotage or sabotage and technical ecstasy album era. Leaving the sweet leaf for the sweet reef, Jez took his electric wizardry to the open oceans of synthy soundtracks. He schooled together some of the best analog and digital instrumentation of the era, including the legendary Yamaha CS80 and the Moog Mini, and squeezed out an amazing 1981 soundtrack before releasing it via private press. With waves of synth amongst Baroque sensibilities, Imagine if Blade Runner was hunting Red October, and you get the picture. If bringing this ultra-rare music back to the surface wasn't enough, the artwork is almost as cool. Remember those great action transfer toys from the 70s and 80s where you used a pencil to rub on your favorite character um, onto a paper background, allowing you to create your own scene? The inside jacket of this LP allows you to build your own underwater world by transferring on frogmen, mini-subs, octopi, and angelfish onto the sleeve as you see fit. One of the most ingenious ideas for a cover ever. Worth picking up while you can, here is the darkly majestic final track, Magic of the Dolphin.
Trunk um, reissued something I've been wanting on vinyl for as long as I can remember, and we you found it for me the other day, and it was that Children of the Stone soundtrack that I've been wanting forever, and it's just like it's amazing what he puts out. Yeah, like, it's just beyond the the underwater library, which I mean he puts out amazing stuff with that, but gosh, he's so cool. An ancient Mariner legend recalls the story of the young German oceanography student at the University of Kiel who locked himself in a houseboat in the early 80s and taught himself to compose music with new electronic instruments to accompany the wildlife that existed around and below his floating domicile. He dreamed his music would be used for famous ocean documentaries, so he had a hundred copies of his music pressed onto vinyl, which he gave to family and friends with high hopes that they would somehow be able to custow away on the Nautilus. Eventually, one of these ultra-rare private presses made it to Digitalis Recordings in 2011, just as New Age music was having a mind-expanding moment. The alleged artist was Jürgen Mueller, and his Science of the Sea album is truly a beautiful piece of calming waves of minimalist ocean songs a sort of antithesis to sea punk vaporwave. Less a Moby Dick of private press and more a fishtail of the underwater library resurgence, Science of the Sea is worth taking a dip into. In 2019, Matthias Unabach released an album called Voyage Beneath the Sea that sounds like it could exist in several decades, finding shelter amongst the 1950s exotica, the dramatic intense underscores of the 1960s, and the aquatic library scene of the 70s. fascinating and real soundtracks was created by Olivia Wyatt in the Bitching Bajas to accompany a documentary called Sailing a Sinking Sea. Wyatt's documentary explores the Mokum people of Burma who are semi-nomadic and spend eight months of the year living on thatched roofed wooden boats with a belief system that completely revolves around the water. The textural soundtrack swoons and washes over you with fragments of tribal drumming and voices to help connect the listener to the experience of the seafaring subjects.
finally, the subgenre has also led to people questioning what is the true underwater music sound? A few people have even tried to answer that question by squeezing into their speedos and diving in head first. Or maybe belly flopping is more accurate. Definitely veering way more to experimental and ambient. Michael Rodolfi was a French electroacoustic musician who created a series of musical performances that were actually performed and experienced underwater, and he claims the dubious title of the founder of underwater music. Screw those whale song guys. With equipment, often a synclavier digital synthesizer attached to a giant multicolored flotation device that would be outfitted and submerged in water, either in open water or in pools, Rodolfi would invite his audiences to float and or swim to experience his electrifying sounds. Starting in the 1980s, he has been putting on performances regularly in waterholes worldwide, and I think his fans are mostly there just in case he does electrocute himself. His fans are really lifeguards. In modern times, the Danish band Aquasonic is the big fish in the underwater music orchestra scene. Aquasonic, which apparently was not named after my favorite electric toothbrush brand, uses highly specialized subaqueous instruments, like an underwater organ called a hydrolophone and a waterproof hurdy-gurdy called a rotocorda. Aquasonic performs in five giant glittery fish tanks as if they were waiting to be selected as market price dinner at Red Lobster. The band even came up with a vocal technique for underwater swimming that doesn't involve them drowning. The whole thing is pretty bonkers, even for the Danish. I can't wait until they start throwing black metal musicians into the ocean to see how that sounds. Here is a bit of Aquasonic. But you should throw on some goggles and try to find a video clip of them as well. It's something to see. if you're looking to get into the action yourself, you can check out the annual Lower Keys Underwater Music Festival where snorkelers and divers can play along to oceanic favorites like whale songs and Jimmy Buffett's fins. Unlike this podcast, which never relies on bad puns, this festival is floundering in soggy wordplay. The intrepid and often colorfully clad swimmers rock out on giant novelty instruments like trombone fish, sea fan flute, and flukulele, which is really fun to say, and sometimes even find themselves with special celebrities like Paul McCarpney, Ringo Starfish, Sid Fishes, Skinny Guppy, 
Insane Clownfish Posse, Lou Reef, or Charlie Manatison. The festival is mostly to raise awareness for the plight of the coral reefs and ocean health in general. 95% of the ocean remains unexplored, and it is not unreasonable to imagine that 95% of library music has not truly been explored as well. Part of what makes library music so interesting is the unknown. So much music that exists only in the background, as a passing mood or an atmospheric cue. With Underwater Library, this sense of purpose is doubly necessary. The music needs to both set the mood and also transport the listener to a place where they'll likely never truly get to explore. Where perhaps no humans will get to explore, despite it being the last great unknown environment for our planet. As seas rise and our cities submerge, we slowly yield to the global ocean that was our Earth three billion years ago. Until then, we sit and we wait in our lighthouses, amongst the squawking seagulls watching the waves come in. At least we have this music to ease the transition to our watery conclusion. The sounds on the record, when you hear it, it sounds like you're underwater. How do we decide that that's what underwater sounds like? You know, just that kind of that progression of the harp and the flute being so important. Somebody just decided, well, harps cascading sound is just, you know, that's what it must be like underwater. It, it must sound like bubbles. It must sound like moving light reflecting in different ways. I just imagine that just kind of like we all just kind of agreed to it. And the more it became kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy and we just kind of watched it and watched it and watched it. And we all agreed that that must be what it's like. Makes sense. It just seems like, you know, right away when you hear it that, hey, this is the idea of water. The cool thing about this genre is that it's really not a genre. I mean, it really is just kind of a bunch of people agreeing that this is what it would sound like underwater, and let's just kind of go with it. Yeah. And it definitely ties in a lot with, like, New Age or the chiller electronic music type stuff, but, it, you know, it goes back all the way. It's a funny thing how these things develop and clump together. All right, are you ready to play some songs? It's been a while. Let's play some songs. The first track I'm going to play for you tonight is by Sven Liebeck. It is called Sounds of the Deep. And it is from the album Inner Space, The Lost Film Music of Sven Liebeck.
All right, that was, again, Sounds in the Deep by Sven Liebeck from the album Inner Space, the lost film music of Sven Liebeck, put out on Trunk Records in 2006. That track, along with a few others on this album, are outtakes from Inner Space and were recorded in 1974. Johnny Trunk first heard Sven Liebeck in the 60s as he was traveling through Australia. He already had a huge interest in surf music, and he began a correspondence with Liebeck. And through the years, Liebeck would occasionally send him some material that he had recorded but never released. And those were all put into this album. So it's uh, music from four documentaries that Sven Liebeck created the songs for, but that did not make the final cut. Trunk released this album after Wes Anderson's Life Aquatic, which featured five songs of Liebeck's, and he did it as a way to open up Liebeck to potential fans who had heard the Life Aquatic soundtrack and, you know, might want to hear more. He wanted to put more out there so that Liebeck would have more fans because he absolutely deserves it. Uh, we spoke quite a bit in this episode about Liebeck, so I don't have a whole lot of additional information that we really need to go over for this. Um, but that, again, is Sven Liebeck and... Everybody should seek out as much as they can by him. He's really wonderful. All right. For my first song, I'm not going to play a library music song. I'm going to play something with a kind of similar vibe, but, you know, in a more rock sense. This is Sea Song by Robert Wyatt. Every day 
All right, that was the song Sea Song by Robert Wyatt. That was uh, came out on the album Rock Bottom, which was released on Virgin Records 1974. You probably know the story of Robert Wyatt. He um, was the drummer and sometimes singer for Soft Machine and Match Matching Mole. And then he had a drinking problem and one time happened to fall out of a fourth floor bathroom and he um, became a paraplegic. And at that time, he more or less quit drumming or at least had to change how he drummed because he couldn't use his you know, bottom half. And he ended up being you know, homebound for a while. And so he started writing an album. He'd already written a lot of songs, but he kind of changed the whole mode of it. And he, he ended up writing this, this beautiful album called Rock Bottom. His girlfriend had got him a cheap Riviera organ. And so he was, you know, basically stuck in Venice. I think his wife was like an actress or something, wife or girlfriend. And so he just started writing about what he saw around him and the pain he was dealing with, you know, both physical and emotional. And so the song is is just haunting to me. Didn't find a ton about it, but one thing that he did say about it is he was watching the canals from his villa. He said, not the little canals, but the big open ones. And the feeling staying in this house that you'd go down this path instead of a road There'd be water. Venice in winter, when the tide goes down, there are all these little crabs scuttling around the moss at the waterline. It's evocative and strong. And so I think that was one of the big influences on this song. It doesn't sound like much else out there. He's got such a cool voice, and the organ is just really a unique instrument in this case. So it was produced by Nick Mason of Pink Floyd, but I really like that song, and I just thought this would be a good day to play it. I'm going to veer back into the library music for my second song. This is a song called Fairy Tale by Joel Van Drugenbeck and Walt Rockman, who we both mentioned in this episode. Thank you. 
All right, that was Fairy Tale. It was originally released on an album called Contemporary Pastoral and Ethnic Sounds that was released on Color Sound in 1980. Uh, we mentioned Color Sound a couple times too. Um, I've got it on a cool library music uh, comp called Unusual Sounds that was put out by Anthology Records in 2018. And it's uh, basically this uh, library music uh, collector, David Hollander, and he kind of pieced together a, a really cool collection. Not a ton to say about it. We just talked about both those guys, and this is just a really great example of how weird and fun library music can be. All right, good choice. And for the final song of the, the episode and my second one, I am selecting Miriam Gendron's song, The False Friends. That was The False Friends by Miriam Gendron from her 2013 album, Not So Deep As A Well. Miriam Gendron sings Dorothy Parker. And Miriam Gendron is uh, by day book dealer in Quebec. And by night, when she chooses to be, she is a brilliant singer, songwriter, guitar player who can fill a song with so much without you really noticing it. The way this album seems to, to have come about is she, as a book dealer... Uh, she happened upon or was reading some Dorothy Parker poems and thought that they were very musical, very lyrical. And so she recorded in her bedroom a few of them uh, and just heard a guitar and it was released as an album. She didn't really think much about making another album after that, a follow-up from, from what I've read. And so it wasn't until 2021 that she released her follow-up album. And again, not knowing that that's really even what that was, but 
around that time, a little bit before that, she happened upon some folk songs that really grabbed her, got her attention, and she wanted to record them. So she recorded a few of those and added into that even a couple of her own songs and uh, released her second album. It's equally as beautiful and moving and just so chock-a-block full of uh, anything you would ever want in a song. Um, you should certainly go out and get both of them, and I think she's even might be even still be touring with Bonnie Prince Billy right now. I was going to go through and play another one of our watery, uh, moist songs for to finish us out for the night, but boy, did I just really feel like listening to Miriam Gendron today, so that's what you guys get to hear. Hopefully I'm sharing that to people who will appreciate it. Very good. All right, you ready to uh, try some trivia? Oh, man, I forgot all about the trivia. I am ready for the follow-up to trivia. All right. I'm going to go ahead and play my seven tracks again and let me know uh, song, artist, and theme if you can get it. Track one. Track two. Track three. This old world may never change. Where it's been. Track four. Doing the town and doing it right in the evening. It's pretty pleasing. Track five. Track seven. All right, Joe, come back at you. What you got for me? Um, number one, I believe, is the Beatles with "I'm the Walrus." Correct. Two, I'm not sure of. Don't I don't have a guess for two. Two is a uh, metal band that put out a record about Moby Dick, more or less. Mastodon and the songs "Blood and Thunder." Uh, they're screaming white whale. We've talked so. about that one a few times too. I yeah, think. yeah, it's pretty popular as it goes. All right. Yeah, really good. Um, number three, I had uh, Dolphins by Fred Neal. Correct. I really like that song. Number four, I don't have. I don't know that one. That's a little song called Muskrat Love by ah, Captain, Captain and Tennille. Oh, very nice. Yep, yep. Number five, is it Porpoise Song by the Monkees? Correct. Okay. Good work. Number six, it sounds like Wire. I know it isn't, though, and I can't think of what it is. It is The Clean and the song is called Platypus. Okay, thank you. We talked about Flying Nun earlier too. Yep, yep. I was gonna, I was gonna say we, we mentioned their label. I don't know how much that would have helped you though. We mentioned a lot of labels. 
to me, the voice just sounded like, uh, it sounded a lot like wire more so than anything else. Uh, and I just did not pick up on it. And then All number right. seven, number seven, I do not have either. Okay, so, that is Feist with Sea Lion Woman. Oh, okay. I've never heard, I don't think I've ever heard that song. I, I know her one, two, three, four one. But... Yeah, her, her big hit with the Sesame Street. Yeah. So. Monsters at my door, something like that. Yeah. Thank you for that. Was a great quiz. I liked it. Okay, but you got to get the theme. I told you you didn't have to, but surprise, you did. Oh well, these are they all have animals in them. Sea seafaring animals, I believe, some kind of aquatic animal-y things. Okay, I'm going to need you to be more specific. Uh, Sea mammalies. Sea mammals. mammals. That is correct. Sea mammals. Okay. So, good work. Getting getting less than half of them was uh, still made made it possible. So, thank you for setting that up for me. Sort of disappointed you didn't get muskrat love. Me too. Um, I've been disappointed throughout my life that I haven't received enough <laughs> muskrat love. <laughs> Hung like a muskrat is also not a compliment. Real? Wait, what? <laughs> so I guess we need to uh, to say some thank yous. Uh, I think the first thing we want, or the first people we want to thank, are is everybody who's reached out in the last two years. And checked on us or asked if we were going to put out new episodes or, you know, just said they like the show. It's actually kind of the reason we we started back up is we've had several people within a couple of weeks kind of reach out. So Joe and I got talking about it and we're both in a better place to kind of uh, make the show again. So we uh, we jumped on it. So uh, thanks for everybody who who has listened in the past and who's listening now and and thanks definitely for for saying hi to us. It means means a ton. And to Morris too from uh, See Here Music, and um, he reached out several times. Uh, very very kind, wonderful person. Definitely a good guy. Should we thank Pantheon? I guess we're still on him, right? Gosh, I, that certainly is kind of them to <laughs> allow us to keep doing this after not showing up for work for two years. <laughs> No, we appreciate Pantheon. They're they're a great podcast network, and you know we are definitely a, a little minnow in their in their sea of awesome music shows. But the fact that they keep us on the air is is amazing, and so we appreciate all their support uh, in the past and and now. Thank you, everybody. It's been a, a long time. We've really missed doing these. We talk about it all the time, and it just. Hopefully it's hopefully it works out now that we can get back on track and, and make a lot more uh, silly podcasts about obscure music. Absolutely. We do have social media. Uh, I don't know what it, the social media is. It's mostly Highway Hi-Fi Pod. Is that right? I think it, it has been. Um, <laughs> Highway Hi-Fi Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we, I believe we have Twitter, but I don't know if Twitter is a thing anymore. I'm not yeah. sure. I think we have an Instagram, but I don't know how much I've posted, so I'll try to post some more stuff. Oh, and and make sure that if you've got a little extra, you know, money and time, go support a, a local record store or or buy something off Bandcamp, buy some trunk records, buy buy something. Help record stores recover. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's definitely good that that there's all those Taylor Swift records out there getting bought, but. You know, don't forget about the little guys, too. All right. And we will see you next time. The end. 
Sadly and ironically, he died in a diving accident in the Canary Islands in 1975. The last thing anyone heard of him, he was Kirsty McCullen for help. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.